You're listening to the 66, the podcast that people who love the Bible listen to. People who don't care about the Bible don't listen to this podcast. We're just, uh, Andrew and I were just talking before uh, we started the microphone here about how to get more listeners, and uh, maybe we take ourselves a little too seriously, but we think that if you love the Bible, you love this podcast, because what we do is we go through the Bible book by book. The goal is, by the end of this thing, to have covered all 66 books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we're making our way through our third one, officially, our third uh, book of the Bible, the book of Esther, which is a part of a series on restoration that began with Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, we saw the restoration of worship, and we saw the restoration of the law, Then we went through Nehemiah, and we noted the restoration of the city, that is, the city of Jerusalem. And now we're in Esther, and we're talking about the restoration of honor. You know, once the Jews had, and of course, you know, we're not speaking chronologically here. These books did not fall in the order historically that we're covering them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, thinking thematically, once they had the temple up, and they had the law established, and they had the city built, They still didn't have their honor as a people, as an identity. So that's what the book of Esther is all about, how they go from a people who could be just thrown to the curb to a people who could hold their heads high. And by the end of this book, you'll see that. But first, we've got to see, you know, how that happens through this amazing girl. I, you know, started to call her a woman, but this girl, Esther. And uh, in the last episode, we talked about Esther and introduced her as a character, as a heroine, and today we're going to talk about the enemy of honor, a villainous subject called Haman. Um, And this is Esther chapters 3 and 4. We're introduced to Haman there, and we see that at the beginning of chapter 3, he's promoted and advanced for unknown reasons by Ahasuerus to the position of Prime Minister of Persia. And uh, he's everything's going well, and he's getting the attention that he wants. But Mordecai refuses to honor Haman by bowing down to him. And uh, he just won't do it, while all the others are. And we usually chalk that up to Mordecai's dignity and his, um, you know, maybe a little pride or his independence. Mordecai did have an independent streak. But I think there's more to it than that. In the last episode, we talked about how in the book of Esther, it has the distinction of being the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Mm-hmm. But we argued that you know God is all through this book. And I think this is one example where you see a hint of belief in God. There has to be a reason why Mordecai would not do this. And the only explanation is given is in verse 4 where it says that they spoke to him day after day and he wouldn't listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for they had told him that they, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So somehow the author connects his Jewishness with this refusal to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And you wonder if it has something to do with his belief in God as the only God and the only person worthy of worship, his belief in the first two of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it seems to fit with, with that. And, uh, you know, in verse 8, Haman is complaining to the king about how the Jews are different. And what made them different was their monotheism. 
And it reminds us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, you know, where they refused to bow down. Same kind of attitude there displayed by Mordecai. So you may see a sign of faith right here at the early part of today's episode where Mordecai is not going to bow down to this new prime minister of Persia. Well, that wounds Haman's pride, and so he takes extreme measures. And I want to start reading in chapter 3, verse 7, which says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, and the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots. We'll talk about that more in the second part of the episode, what that is. Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So this is Ahasuerus' twelfth year, according to verse 7, which means that he and Esther have been married five years, And Haman is casting lots and decides by the lots to make this decree to have the Jews exterminated on this particular day of the year that was determined by the lots. And as he goes to the king with this proposal, you notice that he skillfully left out two things. First of all, he didn't give the king the name of the quote-unquote certain people Mm-hmm. that he wanted to exterminate. And he also didn't tell Ahasuerus why he wanted them dead. Just said that they were different, and so they didn't need to be tolerated. Uh, Haman's obviously wealthy. Uh, he offered 10,000 talents of silver. That's 750,000 pounds of silver. Mm-hmm. The price of silver changes so much that I'm not even going to try to come up with a modern equivalent to how much money that is, you could just imagine how much 750,000 pounds of silver would be worth. But he offered that, and that's probably you know the reason why the king accepted his proposal. One source says that's a third of Persia's annual budget. Another source estimated that it could have been two-thirds of Persia's annual budget. So that was a very attractive deal to Ahasuerus. So in response, Ahasuerus gives his signet ring to Haman, and he does you know, say something here that seems to reject the offer of money in verse 11. The money is given to you, uh, the people also, to do with them as it seems good. It sounds like he's saying, keep the money and dispose of the people. But later on in chapter 4, Mordecai tells Esther about... Uh, uh, the exact sum of money Haman promised to pay into the king's treasuries. And Esther complains in chapter 7, verse 4, about being sold, about her people being sold. So, uh, you know, this was just Ahasuerus trying to cover up the fact that this was all just about money. He was 
trading genocide for money. And that, that was the motivation in his mind. He didn't need to know what people it was. He didn't know he didn't need to have a reason why Haman wanted them murdered. The money is all that he heard, which says a lot about this king. We already have seen some examples of his ruthlessness. Mm-hmm. This is Xerxes, as he's called in the historical documents yeah. about Persia, and not a very good person at all. So the edict, edict was made by Haman that on the 13th day of the first month, uh, that all the Jews should be exterminated, and that would be on April the 17th, 474. Uh, did I get that right? That's um, chapter 3, verse 12. The, yeah, the 13th day yeah. of the first month. Uh, April the 17th, 474 B.C., which is... And so this would be the 13th year of Ahasuerus, right? Because in verse 7, we're in first month the 12th year they cast lots until the 12th month and so back in now mm-hmm. verse 12 we're in the first month again so this is the next year yeah and I was saving okay. some of this yeah that's right I was saving some of this for the part 2 but I, I do okay. think for clarification we should point out that they weren't casting lots for a full year but they were okay. casting lots on a calendar or something through each day of the calendar oh. and so they cast lots through the first month, and they cast lots through the second month until the lots fell randomly on this 13th day of the first month of the next year. Oh, cool. So that that's how so they came s- up with this date. Okay. And, and somehow that, you know, was how Haman, that was another part of Haman's justification for doing this is, mm-hmm. well, you know, some there's some supernatural force moving these lots to yeah. choose this day for uh, the end of, of the Jewish people. Yeah. And that's how he chose the day, by that's the cool. lots, by the pur, P-U-R. That's yeah. how it's spelled. So an edict is made that the people be destroyed. And uh, I like the way chapter 3 ends. You know, this book reads like a story. And mm-hmm. chapter 15 is very cinematic to me. You know, I can just picture it in a movie. It says that the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So you see the difference between these hardened politicians up in the citadel, up in their, you know, ivory palace, and the people down on the streets who were about to be part of a bloodbath, either on the giving end or the receiving end of it. It's a it's a terrible scene, which brings us to chapter four. Uh, just dropped my Bible there. In chapter four, we get Esther back into the picture and and Mordecai, and uh, they learn of it along with all the other people. In fact, uh, Mordecai informs Esther about Haman's plans to do their people in. Uh, Mordecai is known to be a Jew, but Esther is uh, secretly one, per her uncle's advice, or whatever kind of relative he was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he sends word to her that she should use her influence to move the king to compassion and save her people. And here's how that goes down, beginning in verse 13 of Esther chapter 4. Mordecai told them in reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You see, she was hesitant at first to to take this message to the king because no one was allowed to enter into the king's palace uninvited and Esther hadn't been invited into the king's throne room for 30 days. So although they seemed to have been in the same city for 30 days, she hadn't seen her husband for that period of time, Mm. which suggests that something was awry in the marriage relationship there. Mm-hmm. They were not, you know, like uh, everyday life. Um, you know, can you imagine being away from your wife for for thirty days, living in the same right after you got same town? Yeah, they hadn't been married for very long. No, you know, well, five years, but okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Hollywood, that's that's like a long time. <laughs> you know, most <laughs> of us lifetime, that's that's yeah. that's a young marriage still. And they hadn't seen each other, and, and he had not been asking her in. So she was very hesitant. She could be killed to go into the king's presence uninvited. That was part of their loss. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk more about the protocol for that, I think, in the next episode where she actually does go in. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Oh, yeah. But uh, for now, notice Mordecai builds an argument for her to go and risk her life to save her people. And the first thing that he says to her is, doing nothing accomplishes nothing. Look again at verse 13. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So let's say Esther, for her own safety, you know, let's say she decides to, to be selfish and uh, does nothing. Mm-hmm. She's a Jew. She's going to be found out to be a Jew, and she'll be killed one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So doing nothing, you get... No results. You still die. And then his second argument is, God will deliver his people with or without your help. Verse 14, yeah. He said, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And how can you read that and not think that God, that Mordecai is counting on God? That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. I mean, just the confidence of, hey, if you don't do it, somebody else it will relief is going to come from another place and you know his obviously his faith is not in just another person here it's got to be in in God he's not thinking of another like figure in the Jewish nation at this time like well if you don't do it you know so and so is going to do it and he's obviously got God in his, on his mind here especially with I mean he's in sackcloth and ashes God is all in this book yeah he's not his worldview is not that the world is a senseless, chaotic, meaningless place. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't believe that injustice will be allowed to go unpunished. Yeah, this is wrong. You know, he he believes that there are absolute right. Some things are absolutely right, and some things are absolutely wrong. And this is absolutely wrong. Yeah, and it is not going to stand. Now, Esther can be a part of the solution. Or she can step aside and be killed and somebody else will be a part of the solution. Yeah. It's an interesting argument and it shows really 
without naming God, where Mordecai is coming from. Yes. Very subtle. Um, And then the third argument is, maybe you became queen for this reason. And again, you know, he's there's a reason behind the universe. Yeah. You know, this is where the theme of providence really shines through and this is one of the key texts on divine providence in the whole Bible. Uh, Esther chapter 4 verse 14, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean that 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 phrase such a time as this is mm-hmm. you know kind of become a part of our speech, you know, in in church because we think of this story as God saving his people, not miraculously, but providentially through yeah. this, you know, unlikely hero, Esther and Mordecai. So he puts up a pretty good argument, and she calls for three days of fasting. Now, again, you see the religious inclinations of the people, yeah. because with fasting comes prayer. And so she's like, oh, why, why just fast? You know they're, they're praying during this time, although... Yeah. It's mentioned. It just seems like the author is going out of his way to mention any religious stuff. Josephus actually does say that they pray. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. He says they yeah. offer supplication, which I'm going to yeah. assume is prayer. I mean, they had to have been. I mean, why would they yeah. be fasting and not praying? These are mm-hmm. these are Jewish people. Yeah. Uh, and, and that just shows that there, there's some reason. You know, the author is withholding these religious practices, but trying to get this spiritual message through anyway and he's very successful yeah. and she shows a lot of courage here at the end of the chapter saying if I perish I perish um, just a wonderful statement that she makes here at the end so that's the story of the villain Haman and um, you know we've got you know, we'll see a lot more about him mm-hmm. in further episodes oh yeah To return to this scene in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, where they cast lots to determine the day on which um, Haman determines to exterminate the Jews, to commit genocide. Uh, And we, we said in the last part of the episode that this isn't them casting lots all year long kind of reads that way because it says that uh, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, or Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And it sounds, when you read that, it sounds like, man, these guys did nothing for a full year, but cast lots day after day, month after month. That's what but, I thought when you just read it. Yeah, and it's what it reads like. But but what they're doing is they're doing some kind of superstitious thing with the lots or the pur to cat. Okay, day day one, month one, cast a lot. Day two, month one, cast a lot. Day three, mm-hmm. cast a lot. Okay, we made it through the first month. Let's do the second month. Cast a lot. Cast a lot. And I'm not exactly sure about how the mechanics of that work. But the 
one thing I wanted to point out is the the antecedent of they, which is not given here, would be something like astrologers or holy men. More than likely, these were Zoroastrian magi. And you read about the magi over in the gospel accounts, not knowing exactly what that means, but the magi were the Zoroastrian holy men. Zoroastrianism was a uh, Persian religion, still practiced today by a handful of people. It's been almost totally wiped out by Islam in that part of the world, which is modern-day Iran. Mm -hmm. But there's still some who practice it. And it was a somewhat monotheistic religion of its own, but it later evolved into having many, many gods. And by this time, it probably had many gods. It was probably polytheistic by this time. And these were probably the priests of Zoroastrianism. And, you know, even in Jesus' story, they're staring at the skies. You know, they see the star because they're always looking at the skies trying to determine, you know, what the stars are saying about life on earth. And God used that as an opportunity to give them a real sign yeah. about the, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So these are probably those kinds of men. Now, we don't know that for sure because it doesn't say that, but there are definitely some superstitious religious personalities that are guiding Haman through this process of casting lots to determine supernaturally some kind of decision that he's trying to make. Yeah using their little magic eight ball or whatever it is <laughs> to do that. Um, now, per is interesting because it's a weird word that pops up in our text. Mm-hmm. And it's capitalized. And the reason for that is later on, there's going to be a new feast instituted for the Jews to celebrate their deliverance called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, based on this word per, which means lots. So it just ties it all nicely together, and that's why the Persian word is given. It's one of the rare occurrences of a Persian word in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. And it's transliterated for us. It's not It's not translated into what it would be because translation is given that it means casting lots. Mm-hmm. Is Purim, Purim, is that just the plural of per? Because I know in Hebrew a plural ending is I am. Uh, so maybe. Purim just means lots. Maybe the um, they would oh, be no. putting a Hebrew yeah, ending onto a Persian word, though. Yeah, is. that makes sense. I just, it's the name of the feast, and Pur is the name of the act of casting yeah. lots. To be continued when they um, actually set up Purim. These, these lots, in case you're wondering, they, they kind of act like, you know, I mentioned the Magic 8 Ball a minute ago. You get a Magic 8 Ball, you know, does so-and-so love me? And then you turn it over and it says yes, no, or maybe... Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of the answers that the lots would give you. They would cast a lot, and, you know, on this day, is this the day on which we'll exterminate the Jews? No. Going to the next day, is this day on which... And I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but it is fascinating that they cast lots until they got to the... What is it? They got all the way through the calendar, and they didn't come up with a day until after the day they began this, evidently, because... They determined that it would be on the 13th day of the first month that they would cast lots, which gave Mordecai and Esther a full year to get ready for all of these things. And I yeah. think that, you know, there's a lot of things stacking up here 
And you can call them coincidences, but I think we all know these are not coincidences. You know, a, a Jewish girl happens to be... Well, let's back up even further than that. Ahasuerus' first wife refuses to be paraded out in front of all his friends, and she's banished from the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Then, a Jewish girl named Esther just happens to be selected to be the next queen. And then, Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king. That'll come up later. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, Haman casts lots, and the lot happens to fall upon a date that is very beneficial to the Jews who are trying to scramble to get together. Because what if what if the lot had fallen on the second month? Or even later in the first month? Yeah. They would have been doomed. There's no way that Mordecai could have gotten the warning out, or he could have gotten Esther to try to influence the king, which is what happens, and she wouldn't have had time to do all her feasts and gradually build up to this climax that we get later mm-hmm. on in the book. So you see God's providence slowly at work, even in these casting of lots. And um, that's just very interesting if you as, as you look at that. And I've got something here from what we just mentioned about uh, Pur and Purim. And it is. It's got a Hebrew plural ending on the Persian word Pur. The Jews, I'm reading out of Kaufman's commentary here, the Jews took the Persian word Pur and gave it a Hebrew plural Purim. So mm-hmm. the the feast is literally the I guess the feast of Purim is the feast of lots. Yeah. So I, lots. That's pretty neat. They're kind of like dice. Yeah. You throw them throw them down on the ground like dice, and people superstitious people have been using things like this for a long time. You see in movies, people put you know bones or whatever yeah. and flip a coin, roll today. the bones or Same flip thing. a coin. It's that kind of kind of thing. Just. Mm-hmm. Using chance as a way to determine what the gods are saying. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to bring up was this decision that Hasuerus made. It's not really, I don't know if we could qualify it as a decision because he didn't even ask Haman, you know, what people do you want to totally remove from the face of the earth? What culture do you want to completely obliterate? He doesn't ask him that. Or why, Haman, do you want me to go to the trouble of putting out an edict? that will destroy a nation of people. He doesn't ask him that. So what is behind all this? We mentioned the motive of money, and that's probably having to do with it. But another theory that I find interesting is that maybe he intimated that this was the Jews that Haman was talking about. It's very possible that he would have known who Haman was talking about when Haman said, there's a certain people who have a different law. They're different. And that may have been all that... And they're scattered all over your empire. That was another hint. And that may have been all that Ahasuerus needed to know to know who he was talking about. And um, if he did know that it was the Jews, he might have thought back to a letter that we talked about in our podcast on Ezra that's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. A letter to Xerxes, I think he's called... No, it's he's called Ahasuerus in Ezra as well. Um, a letter to Ahasuerus from the inhabitants of Palestine who are complaining about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Yep. Now, he's already received this complaint against the Jewish people. And maybe he's now... Haman, his prime minister, is complaining about them as well. And he doesn't understand maybe how petty the complaint is, that it's based on the fact that one particular Jew 
does not want to bow down to him and pay homage to him. But here it is a second time, and this king, he's got too many things to do to worry about these people. So it ties in, and, and you know, it's, I have to think about it time and time again, that the first part of Ezra comes before the book of Esther, and the second part of Ezra comes exactly. after the book of Esther. And that's hard and confusing, but if you get that in your mind, Ezra chapter 4 verse 6 ties in nicely, maybe um, informs us a little bit about what's going on in the text here with this. Mm-hmm. So it would have been, uh, this is just for the sake of clarification, I guess, Ezra, an easy way to remember it is who is in charge, who the king is, because in Ezra 7 is when Artaxerxes hits Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. Xerxes is the king in Esther. So I mm-hmm. guess in chapter 7, this is after um, Esther and the Feast of Purim been inaugurated. Uh, there's something I want to make a brief mention of. Um, Haman. This guy Haman. Um, he's called an Agagite, or however you want to pronounce that to make yourself sound smart is great. Agagite doesn't sound all that scholarly, but that's the best I can do. Um, Agagite. Agagite. There you go. That sounds, that sounds like a rock or some kind of, you know. Yeah. Some kind of mineral. Sounds like it should be formation. on yeah. periodic table. Agagite. I forgot how you said it. Whatever. Um, you might recognize the first one, two, three, four letters of that word, Agag, from second or from first Samuel chapter 15. Uh, this is used a lot in sermons and in classes about obeying the word of the Lord. You have to obey all of it, not just part of it. And what's going on here, the Lord tells Saul to go to the Amalekites and destroy them all, kill them all, wipe them out. And you probably are familiar with this and you know that Saul doesn't do that exactly. You can read in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people of the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And then right after that, you have the word of the Lord coming to Samuel saying, I regret that I made Saul king because Saul did not follow the command of the Lord to utterly wipe them out. And it's interesting that the king that Saul spared against the word of the Lord is Agag, or Agog, or however you want to pronounce it, Agag. Then we get over here to Esther chapter 3, and this guy Haman is a descendant of that king Agag mm-hmm. that Saul allowed to live. So if Saul follows the word of the Lord and kills this Agag... It's all Saul's fault. Yeah, there is no Haman. Way to go, Saul. Yeah, so Saul is to blame for Haman's existence. Uh, so that's a pretty Maybe. interesting... Yeah. That's Maybe. probably why it's mentioned, though. I mean... Yeah. It tells us nothing. Every detail's in there for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it really tells us nothing if it doesn't tell us that. Yeah. You know, maybe there's some Agagite people that we haven't discovered yet in archaeology. But I think mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think that it's mentioned kind of as a nod to that story back in 1 Samuel 15, which is yeah. 
It's really interesting. Uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up is um, anti-Semitism. You know, we everybody's heard about the the Holocaust during World War II, Hitler, Nazis, and they think about anti-Semitism. And even today, you think about you know uh, a lot of the things going on in the Middle East are driven by hatred for the Jews. And we think of it as strictly a modern thing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for us to understand, you know, even people who hold this hatred, I don't know if they understand their hatred. Why, why do you hate a, a race of people just because they're different from you? You know, it's, yeah. it's hard to understand. But those are not the only cases of anti-Semitism. It isn't a modern development. We see it here. Yeah. Because that's behind Haman's action. Any other race of people, one representative would not have ended in the extermination of the entire nation. Yeah. You can't understand Haman unless you understand anti-Semitism. He's, he's not just mad at Mordecai. He hates Jews. Yeah. Okay? I'm sure there are other people who crossed Haman in the past, and he just had their heads cut off. Or In those days, they'd impale them on gallows, which we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit later. And we've talked about it before. We yeah. have gallows come up all the time yeah. in these podcasts. He hates Jews. And, you know, why? I, I don't know. You know, there's some possible reasons. They were different, and he mentions that they're different. A certain people, they have different laws. And one of the things that made them different was they had a devotion to one invisible God. No idols. One God. And that made them appear separatist, isolationist. It made them appear atheistic. Because they didn't, you know, the the main god, uh, Hira Mazda, of Mm -hmm. the Persians, the Jews didn't accept that god as their god. And maybe by this point, as I said, you know, Zoroastrianism at one time was monotheistic, but it evolved into accepting other gods. Maybe they'd be willing to accept Yahweh. But the Jews said, no, you know, we don't accept your god. And, of course, you see Mordecai refusing to bow down to to Haman, as um, Haman was pretty much wanting to be a god on earth, some kind of uh, um, incarnation or whatever, avatar. But then um, another thing is they had these dietary laws that made them seem strange. You know, and uh, we were talking about foods a while ago. You know, people don't, some people don't like coffee. Mm -hmm. And... uh, some yeah. people don't like, you know, certain kinds of food. And what do you think? I mean, what is your natural inclination when somebody refuses to even try your favorite food? What do you kind of think? What? You don't like bacon? Yeah. yeah. You, know, you don't like pork? What's what's wrong with you? And yeah. through the ages, you know, those, those uh, Jews, you know, the, the, they they won't eat with us. They, they won't um, gather with us at our feasts and they won't get involved in our festivals and worship our gods and go to our religious festivals with us. They're always off doing their own thing. And the law of Moses did this. It made them a special chosen people. And there's two sides to that. There's the one side is, oh, it's nice to be chosen by God and separate from the world mm-hmm. to be to have that distinction. But the other side is, you're going to be different from everybody else. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, another thing is the Sabbath day made them strange. This was a very different law. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Everybody else was working on the seventh day. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're we live in a Christian culture which has been influenced by Jewish culture. So you know we don't think it's strange if somebody takes Saturday off. Most people have Saturday off. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those days, you're wasting valuable work time. How could you do that? So and there are a lot of other things too. I'm just trying to get you to think. You know what was behind Haman's hatred? These are, of course, not reasons to hate people, mm-hmm. but it's things that made the Jews different from the culture around them, and fed and fueled this anti-Semitism. And I really think that that's part is we're kind of building a biography of Haman, and we'll see more about him later. Mm-hmm. You know, he he really hated these people just for who they were. Couldn't stand them. Oh yeah. from these things and and I'm going to be bringing in some stuff that I skipped before in the reading section just to try to save it for now. And, you know, one of the there's there's a great tragedy going on here. A whole people is, you know, they they have been uh marked for destruction. An edict has been put out and you know, we've already studied how the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be Broken, and that was foreshadowed in chapter one, with this little law about drinking was made about the feast, and you know they took their laws very seriously. And once you make a law, it cannot be revoked. So Haman's move here with the king's signet ring is ominous, very tragic situation, and you see three approaches to tragedy surface in the situation when you know tests come. That's when you really see people's character. And you really see something about the character of Haman and the king, the character of Mordecai, and the character of Esther in this. So the first approach is callous indifference. And this is hinted at in chapter 3, verse 15, where this edict is put out, and the king and Haman, they sit down to drink. They sit down, they, they celebrate, or at least you know have a relaxing evening together and uh, chit-chatting in the citadel in Susa while the whole city is thrown up in confusion. Uh, this is all due to a an edict that amounted to the extermination of a total group of people. And it's hard to know really what to say about, about this particular approach to tragedy. You have to be so callous and indifferent that there's really no hope for you. Your conscience has to be totally gone yeah. when, whenever you get to the point where you can just sit down and have a drink after ordering the death of millions of people. Mm. The second one is more interesting because there's something that you can do with it. And the second approach to tragedy is Mordecai's, and we're going to call that mournful involvement. This is in chapter 4 where Mordecai learns all of these things and he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes out into the midst of the city, crying out with a loud voice and a bitter cry. And he goes up to the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, 
Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. So it's not just Mordecai, but I would say, you know, the rest of the Jews with him. Fasting, weeping, lamenting, many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. You know, when we talked about the book of Nehemiah, we talked about Nehemiah's um, being in the presence of Artaxerxes with a mournful expression on his face and how that was kind of a dangerous move to look sad in the king's presence because Persian kings didn't like that sort of thing. Yeah. And we referred back to this verse as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mordecai's doing something that's not in protocol. He tears his clothes. And uh, why why sackcloth and ashes? Um, It's sackcloth's uncomfortable. You know, think of a burlap sack. That's what we're talking about here. And so you put that on as a sign of your internal discomfort. It's like the, the clothing is imitating your feelings inside. And the ashes, you know, is kind of a sign of everything being a complete waste. And he covers himself with this and show in a show of grief and loss. And he's crying out, and he goes up to the gate, the most public, you know, place. And he did this to express his grief. But I think there's also, you know, another thing that's going on here. If you notice... In chapter 4, he and Esther, it reads sometimes like they're talking face-to-face, but they're really not doing that. Mm-hmm. They're relaying secret messages to one another. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Hatach. I'll talk about her... What? Hatach, is that the name of the guy? In verse 9, Hat, or Hathach. 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 told Esther what more. Sure. So there's a There's a middleman here. Yeah, but he, you know, he sees it and runs and tells her. Now, if he'd just seen Mordecai strolling around, you know, the city gate, he wouldn't have thought anything about it. Or if, even if Mordecai had been praying, or if he had his hand on his head, or you know, acting the way we often act when we're upset. Now, I don't think that it would have drawn much attention. But sackcloth and ashes, loud lamentation, that gets attention, and so he could start this correspondence with Esther through this very clever thing, but also a sincere thing. He really felt this way, and he was really, you know, petitioning God on Mm -hmm. behalf of his people. And I would say this, out of the three approaches we're looking at to tragedy, this is the way that you handle it. Mm -hmm. You get involved, and you mourn about it. Too often, we ignore our feelings, or we bottle them up, or we repress our feelings, thinking that's the best way to do, Mm -hmm. because that's proper, and we don't want to make people uncomfortable. And, yeah, we we need to, you know, respect people's space and not, you know, go into the supermarket screaming and crying about something's happening in our personal lives. But also, mm-hmm. we need to have places that we can go to and express our grief because grief is a very natural thing and it's part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. It's part of um, what moves us to action. Yeah, it's something that all of the... Really, all of the biblical characters, Old and New Testament, when there's a great tragedy, they are not afraid to show their of Jesus himself. You know, showed or he was he was able to show grief and to you know he cries at uh, when he visits uh, Lazarus's family after he dies. You know, they move mm-hmm. him to tears. Um, he doesn't try and bottle it up. You know, there are. And then Job, when Job loses his whole family, he does exactly what Mordecai does. 
sackcloth and ashes. Um, David, when he lost the son uh, that was conceived from him and Bathsheba committing that sin, uh, when it was pretty much given the, or when it was given the death sentence, he sat in sackcloth and ashes, mm-hmm. hoping that God would hear his plea and kill him instead of his child. Uh, you read all through the Psalms, you can see how David just poured out his grief um, through their very, you know, in some places it's de- almost depressing to read about, you know, some of the things that David says. But yeah, I would certainly agree that this form of coping with grief is definitely the most healthy. Because on one hand, it gets out your repressed feelings, which helps, which helps you let go of a, some anger maybe you might have towards uh, ultimately God, I guess, is where the anger will be coming from, or maybe some questions uh, that you have about why God would allow this to happen or allow that to happen. Uh, you know, the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament characters are very bold um, in expressing the way they feel to God, and they're not ashamed to do so. They ask God, why is this happening? Why have you allowed this to happen? But they ask it, you know, they ask it not in the manner of losing their faith. They ask it in a very, uh, I guess, reverent way, just in such a way as they're honest with God. They're not trying to lie to God about the way they feel. And I think that's something that, you know, we would do good to do more of in our culture. I think we're taught more so to just kind of suck it up, you know, rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's something to be said with being honest about you know what's going on uh, with the you know the people in your life, and most importantly, being honest with God. Because if you're trying to lie to God and say you totally understand that this is a part of His will, and that you know you're totally uh, understand why this has happened, but you really don't, you know God's going to know how you really feel about it. You might as well just tell Him, "Look, I, I know somehow this fits in. I just don't know how, and it's really bothering me." You know, and somehow. You know, we know that God is the God of all comfort from Second Corinthians one, and He He will give us comfort one way or the other, and He ends up supplying comfort here through Esther. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what most of us do is this third approach to tragedy, which is willful ignorance. And you know, at first, people don't think of her this way, but at first, this was Esther's response. She didn't start out ready to. To do things as we talked about in a previous section, Mordecai had to convince her through some powerful arguments to take action. Uh, she was deeply distressed, the text says, but it wasn't over Haman's plot. She was embarrassed about Mordecai and distressed over his sackcloth and ashes and actually sent garments down for him to change into, which he refused to do. And he sent a message back to her to shake her out of the fog of her ignorance. And he told her all that had happened to him. He told her about the money that had been exchanged for this uh, plot. He sent her a copy of the edict, and he ordered her to plead for the king, to plead to the king, for the deliverance of the Jews. And she makes this excuse about, you know, I could die by going into the king's presence. Uninvited. The the practice, the custom was that if you went in uninvited, he, unless he extended his golden scepter, you were to be put to death. Mm-hmm. And he had not called her into his presence in thirty days. 
he may have had a mistress on the side by this point. It's probably what was going on with this guy. There's no guarantee that she would be accepted. And uh, so she wanted to stay out of it. She wanted to just act like this wasn't really happening, which is easier for somebody sitting in a palace to do than it is for somebody like Mordecai who's in the heat of things. He was out there with the people, and he knew it was real, and he knew it was happening. You remember at this point, nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. So she she's thinking, you know, maybe maybe I could survive this thing, or this doesn't really pertain to me. Yeah. Thankfully, she did listen to Mordecai, and he was able to convince her through the arguments uh, that and shake her out of the willful willful ignorance that she was in. So think about that. You know, when tragedy comes up, those are the three things that that often come to us. You either have this this callous indifference, or you have this willful ignorance. Or you have some mournful involvement. You get involved no matter how hard it is and face it because you know this is real and this is happening. But you have hope, as Mordecai shows through this whole thing, you know, that there's some reason behind this. There's some way to navigate through this grief mm-hmm. to better times. Yeah, and I think what navigates you through the grief is, I mean, the thing that anchors you down through all of it has got to be your faith that there is a God and that he is in control ultimately. And I think you can definitely see that in Mordecai. And this is the thing I wanted to bring up was the faith that uh, Mordecai and Esther both display. Uh, Mordecai, you know, as we mentioned earlier, says, you know, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance are going to come from another place. He has faith that it's coming somehow. The Jews are going to be taken care of in the long run. Of course, we know it's he believes it's by God as being a Jewish man. Where else would he believe it's going to come from? And then Esther, once Mordecai talks her into it, um, she says, you know, tell everybody to fast, and obviously included there is to pray for me as well. Then she says, I'll go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And I think that's just a really cool statement to make there, you know, it makes a good t-shirt or makes a good, you know, <laughs> yeah. password for your Facebook or mm-hmm. whatever. If I perish, I perish. Um, that shows the strength of Esther's faith here. You know, even though she's got to be scared, you know, out of her mind at this point. She's got to be terrified that she's going to go in. And if you take Josephus's account, she is terrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can save that for uh, our... Our next episode where we actually talk about Esther going into the king. Uh, But she's terrified to do this, but she does it anyway. She says, if I die, I die. She's kind of, she kind of mirrors Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane here. Yeah. You know, she's not handling it as well as he did. Mm -hmm. Because she needed Mordecai there, and Christ didn't have a Mordecai. Yeah. He had his father, and that was it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... But, you know, the two of them, this is the right before the hard part. Yeah. And, of course, what Christ went through was much worse. Oh, yeah. And it didn't quite work out as well for him as it did for her in this mm-hmm. period of fasting and prayer. Yeah. But, I, you know, it just occurred to me that this kind of foreshadows Jesus in the garden. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there is... It, it reminds me, and I brought I brought them up in our last episode of 
Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and also Daniel. You know, these are guys that had the same attitude. If I perish, I perish. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said something almost the exact same. They said, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, let it be known that we would not serve your gods. You know, they're saying, look, God can save us. Even if he doesn't, you know, if we're going to die for this, that's what's going to happen. We're going to die. But either way, we're not going to serve your gods. And so it reminds me, it's that same attitude. If we die, we die. But we're sure not going to do this. And I think that Esther, you know, she really has the same attitude also of Daniel, you know, praying to God regardless of the laws that are made. You know, whatever punishment comes, I'm going to take it. But I'm not going to neglect my duties uh, to the God of the universe, what he's called me to do. And Esther here, I think, is... Uh, somewhat convinced that God's put her here for this reason. Yeah. And so she's going to go in and say, look, I'm going to try this. If I die, I die. And yeah. I, I think that's just, it's an incredible attitude to have. Yeah. Certainly, and I think it's that faith. You know, I think this meshes very well with our discussion here about grief. Because I think what keeps you, what keeps you anchored through grief and what makes you able to express to God the way you really feel is your utmost faith that there is a God and that he is in control and that he does love you. And if that is just as true to you as the fact that, you know, you exist, then certainly there's no harm that can come from expressing your feelings because you're not going to lose your faith over this because, you know, that's, that's just a part of, to you, that's reality. And there's no such thing as losing your faith because that's just a denial of reality. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think Esther is a great book for our day and age because she and Mordecai had to go through all of this the same way we do. Mm -hmm. And we, we, I mentioned this before, but we make the mistake of thinking that biblical characters always had a miracle to fall back on. Yeah. You know that they they had a you know hotline to God, and could call in a miracle whenever they needed it, and that's not you you see a lot of uncertainty here just as in our day and take, day and age it's a very realistic portrayal of life because Mordecai he's not saying Esther you came to the throne for such a time as this he says who knows whether you've not come to the throne. He's Such not like a, time a prophet says, saying, here's the word of the Lord. Yeah. God says, you are here for this reason, and you better do it. Right. He's very different kind of character than mm-hmm. Isaiah or Jeremiah saying, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. You know. And then Esther's over here saying, if I perish, I perish. She doesn't know what's about to happen. Yeah. she. It's almost fatalistic, but it's not that. It's, it's um, you know, I'm going to do this because it's right, and... The rest is in God's hands. Yeah. And that's what life is like for us. Yep. So this book, which, you know, we started out saying the name of God is not even in this book. We're starting to find it to be one of the most practical, realistic portrayals of what life is like for us today. And it's mm-hmm. great to read about the miracles and all of the wonderful things that God has done at periods in history, but... It's also good to have the book of Esther to read about how people in normal times have to have to go through this with their faith and uh, yeah. believe 
in God to work for them providentially. Mm-hmm. Thanks for uh, listening to us. Uh, this wraps up uh, this episode. We'll we'll get into some more of the Book of Esther in our next episode. Look us up online at the66.net. The 66 is a number. And uh, check out our Twitter feed. Follow us on Twitter at the66podcast. You can uh, contact me at dkaiser at arcoc.com or you can contact Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. The music comes from the Danny Martin Quintet. And we're just uh, glad that you're listening with us. We hope that you continue to. We're thankful for all of our listeners. We like a lot more, so tell tell other people about us. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get a lot of people listening. Another thing that would be helpful is if you leave us a review on iTunes and uh, give us five stars. But if you can't give us five stars, give us four. Uh, don't give us any less than that. And that'll help uh, get the word out about the podcast. Uh, we're going to keep doing this as long as we can. We enjoy it. We'll do it just for our own enjoyment. But it's nice to have people following along with us as well. So we're glad that uh, you joined us. Thank you and goodbye.